Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is entitled, Bringing Heaven to Earth Here and Now. It's a guest essay by Joan Roughgarden, author of the book Evolution and Christian Faith, Reflections of an Evolutionary Biologist from the year 2006. Joan Roughgarden has been a professor of evolutionary biology at Stanford University since 1972. She's an active member at St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church in San Francisco. Her essay, Bringing Heaven to Earth, Here and Now, is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December the 2nd, 2007, the first Sunday in Advent. The readings for the first Sunday in Advent are especially provocative to someone like me, whose life work lies in ecology and evolutionary biology. The readings in both the Hebrew and Christian Testaments develop a vision of life in heaven and of our prospects for ever going to heaven. My calling lies in how to make our present life and the earth we live in day to day as much like heaven as possible. And so the readings for this Sunday lead me to ponder why life on this earth seems so far removed from the conditions described for our life hereafter. In the Hebrew Testament reading, the prophet Isaiah foretells of an existence where, quote, people shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Isaiah chapter 2, 1 to 5. Why can't we do this now? Why must we wait for the kingdom of heaven to experience this vision of peace? Is there something lodged in our biology beyond our control that prevents us from attaining this vision here on earth? Or could we all just simply agree to make peace now and forevermore, and have failed to do so merely because we haven't had all the will or the social institutions to accomplish this end? If war is in our biology, the prospects for peace on earth seem bleak. Alas, biologists tell us that conflict is indeed in our genes. And war is merely one manifestation of our essential nature. I find that theologians simply concede such scientific pronouncements and then contemplate how best to live in light of these ostensible realities. But as a biologist, I wonder whether my colleagues are correct. Yes, of course conflict is evident throughout the natural world, but is conflict all there is to the natural world? Or is peaceful cooperation also a biological possibility? Consider instead the vision of St. Paul. In his first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul teaches that through sharing the bread of Holy Communion and through baptism, Christians become one in body. St. Paul explains that the body has many interdependent parts and no part can quit 
or be kicked out. This theme of a diverse community as one organic body, with each part different from one another, yet essential to the whole, runs throughout St. Paul's teachings, and yet also runs throughout the evolutionary biology and ecology today. Indeed, many species seem to live their lives exactly as St. Paul envisions. These are species in which it's hard to distinguish one individual from another. In fact, the possibility of conflict and war traces to emphasizing individualism over community. Species vary on how much individualism they exhibit. Here are just two examples. Mushrooms spring from a, tiny, from a network of tiny tubes in the ground. Nuclei, the little sacs within cells where the genes occur, shuttle back and forth through the tubes. A 2,400-acre site in eastern Oregon has had a contiguous growth of underground tubes estimated to be 2,200 years old. Imagine a single living structure, 2,400 acres big, a gigantic body with millions of more or less autonomous parts. Or again, consider a super colony of the redwood ant on a coastal plain in Hokkaido, Japan, which has 306 million workers and over a million queens living in 45,000 interconnected nests across a territory of 2.7 square kilometers. Of course, there's still some conflict even within giant networks of mushrooms or giant colonies of ants. Maybe they haven't completely melted their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, but they've made progress. Our species, too, can do better at keeping the peace if the success at managing individualism seen in other species can be taken as a guide, and if we fix as our goal the communitarian vision of St. Paul that we are all of one body. And the readings from the Christian Testament also resonate with me. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus teaches, Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Matthew chapter 24 Many in the environmental community have feared that Christians would use the tone of this passage as an excuse to avoid caring for their environment, would stand by and let the earth heat up through global warming, impassively watch the extinction of species as the forests they live in are cut. Many environmentalists fear that Christians avoid heeding their responsibility to care for their Garden of Eden expecting that the second coming will save them just in time, yanking them from the earth into heaven just before the earth goes up in flames. It's a fact of our times that mistrust between scientists, including environmentalists, and persons of faith has never been greater. 
But let's reflect on Jesus' teaching a little more. Jesus says the second coming could be tomorrow. Sure, but also could be any time, perhaps a very long time from now. That's the point. The coming is unpredictable, like the coming of the thief at night. So, be kind and loving now, because the second coming could come tomorrow, and this is your last chance to do the right thing. And be kind and loving forever, because the second coming could be an eternity from now, and this is how to make life on our earth as near as possible to life in, he in heaven. And now for further reflection. In what ways does the human propensity for conflict, individualism, and competition manifest itself? And number two, what about our inclinations to cooperation and community? And then finally, what tilts the scales in one direction or the other? An Advent essay by Joan Roughgarden of Stanford University, bringing heaven to earth here and now. For books this week, I review Andrew Greeley, Jesus, a Meditation on His Stories and His Relationships with Women. New York, a Tom Dottery Associates book, 2007, 172 pages. According to his website, Father Andrew Greeley, who was born in 1928, is, quote, one of the most influential Catholic thinkers and writers of our time, a priest, sociologist, author, and journalist who has built an international assemblage of devout fans over a career that spans five decades. He's the author of over 50 best-selling novels and more than 100 works of nonfiction and his writing has been translated into 12 languages. A professor of sociology at the University of Arizona and a research associate with the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago, Father Greeley is a respected scholar whose current research focuses on the sociology of religion. This little book of meditations is not an academic or scholarly tome but the sort of work Greeley could write over a long and quiet weekend. And its awkward subtitle about women points to its lack of focus. Nevertheless, it's still a book worth reading. The God whom Jesus revealed, writes Greeley, is a God of wonderful surprises and endless generosity. After illustrating this from the Christmas narratives, and then from the story of the encounter on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, in by far the longest chapter in the book, Greeley explores, quote, the profoundly shocking, end quote, nature of Jesus' relationship with women. He not only took their financial support, but accepted them as traveling companions. He elevated them to an equality with men, just as he would elevate Gentiles to an equality with Jews. Although people could feel profoundly vulnerable in the presence of Jesus, women also felt unconditionally safe. 
These relationships with women, says Greeley, were not passing incidents peripheral to the main story, but central to Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God. In his final chapters, Greeley examines the four great parables of reassurance that speak of God's outrageous and even profligate generosity. I like how he's used modern language to entitle these parables. The stories of the crazy vintner, the indulgent father, the lenient judge, and the good Samaritan. The parables of urgency remind us that grace is not cheap, life does not last forever, that our choices matter, and that the kingdom that Jesus announced calls us now and asks for everything. Along the way, Greeley debunks what he calls the absurd fantasies of books like the Da Vinci Code and warns us of the many ways that we domesticate the biblical stories into trite religious sentiment. Andrew Greeley, Jesus, a meditation on his stories and his relationships with women. For film this week, I review the new movie In the Shadow of the Moon from 2007. During his State of the Union address in 1961, President John F. Kennedy challenged the nation before this decade is out to land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth. Despite all the turbulence of the 1960s, Vietnam, three assassinations, the civil rights movement, on July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped off his lunar module ladder and onto the moon. 240,000 miles from Earth, with the unforgettable words, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This remarkable documentary covers much, but not all, of the Apollo program, which ran from 1961 to 1975, and in six missions landed 12 people on the moon the last in 1972 with Apollo 17. The film focuses especially on the first lunar landing with Apollo 11 and the, the catastrophe of Apollo 1 in near catastrophe of Apollo 13. In addition to the sheer magnitude of the scientific and technical feat, the film captures the deeply human drama the truly global celebration, and even the spiritual impact that the lunar landings had on the astronauts. The film draws heavily upon NASA archival film footage, much of which has never been seen before, and reflections by all of the surviving astronauts except for the reclusive Neil Armstrong. This might be the best documentary film of the year 2007. In the Shadow of the Moon. And then finally, for the first Sunday in Advent, we've posted a short but very powerful poem by Denise Levertov, who lived from 1923 to 1997. It's called On the Mystery of the Incarnation.
It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do, and shudder to know the taint in our own selves, that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart, not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike. God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. Denise Levertov on the mystery of the Incarnation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the first Sunday in Advent, December 2nd, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin, 